You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it, and I will, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. He will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Awesome. Isn't that excellent? Thank you. Aren't you glad she was reading that instead of me? Very good. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for another morning where we can come together and sing and worship you and give back just a portion of what you've given to us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to pastor this church, to lead, for the opportunity to teach, to share. I just pray that in this time that you would speak clearly through me. If there's anything here that I don't need to say, then just throw it aside. If there's something that somebody I've missed what you've been trying to say this week, I pray that right now, just as I open up my heart to you, that you would uh, speak in a way that um, God ministers to each and every single heart here uh, in a way that transforms us from the inside out uh, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So here's a question for you. What kind of people does God want on his team? Think about that. What kind of people does God want on his team? If your elementary experience was anything like mine, um, when you would go to recess, if you wanted to play kickball or football or wiffle ball or whatever kind of ball, you would pick team captains and then the team captains would then pick their team. And if you were the best, you would be picked what? First. And if you were the worst, you'd be picked what? Last. Now, if you were me, you would be picked where? About the middle. So I was just going to say what you'd say. Um, about the middle. But you would start and you would pick and eventually you would get to the end. And it, it was... It was such a bummer to be picked last because you knew really it's like I don't even really want you on my team. It's just there's nobody left. And so I'll take you, but I don't really want you. I think that's the way some of us feel when it comes to being on God's team. 
I think that for some of us, if we can be honest, we think that God picks people to be on his team the way the team captains did on the playground. What God is really looking for is impressive people, people who have their lives together, people who don't deal with things like addiction, people who don't have doubts, who don't have fears, people who are popular and prestigious, the best, the brightest of society. That's the people God really wants on his team. And because we believe that, I think that, you know, what we tend to do is we kind of, we, we fall into one of two camps. We either fall into this camp where we walk with a little bit of a spiritual swagger, where we look at our lives and we're like, you know what, yeah, I think God is actually probably pretty lucky to have a guy like me on his team. We think we're impressive, and so we think God must be so excited that I am with him and joining with him in his kingdom work. And there's another type of people who, who don't feel like they're impressive. They don't feel like their lives are spectacular. And so let it, rather than walking with a spiritual swagger and with pride, they walk in despair and they say, man, I am sure that God probably doesn't want me on his team. And if I am on his team, he actually is kind of bummed about that. And the reality is both of those ways of thinking are wrong. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are, fortunate are, not the, the, the popular in spirit, the prestigious or the perfect in spirit, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so if you sit here, if you're listening to this, wherever you are, and you're impressed with yourself, if you think, huh, I believe I am qualified for the kingdom of God, then you're actually unqualified for the kingdom of God. But on the flip side, if you don't feel impressive and you're like, I, I think if anybody is not qualified for the kingdom of God, it's me. Then according to Jesus, you're actually qualified for the kingdom of God, that you are actually in a position right now that God can use in incredible ways. And that's what we see in our text today. Last week, we looked at the church of Sardis. The church in Sardis was the largest and wealthiest church of all the churches that Jesus writes to, and Jesus had nothing good to say about them. In stark contrast, we're going to look now at the church of Philadelphia, the church that is the smallest, the weakest, the poorest of all the churches in Revelation, and Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. And that's something that we need to take to heart, because especially someone like me, I think in America... We tend to think like if something is worth being a part of, if, if it's a church or an organization, like if it's really good, if it's really healthy, if it's really strong, then it's big and it's fast and it's famous. But Philadelphia is none of those things. This church is small, it's poor, and a lot of our eyes would be pitiful. It's not impressive at all. And yet, because they were a church that was needy, in their neediness, because they ran to Jesus, he empowers them to do incredible things. Sam Alberry, in kind of his commentary on this, says the following, Jesus' power is so counterintuitive. We find ourselves thinking the power of Christ must be in the biggest church, the best church with the brightest pastor. But the power of Christ is seen in weak Christian men and women who are clinging to the Lord. And that's what we see with Philadelphia. It's a weak people clinging to the Lord, and he empowers them for amazing things. So look back with me at this letter, and let's just see what Jesus says to them. In verse 7, just like he does with all the churches that he writes to, he, he starts with an introduction, and he says, here's what I want you to know about me. The first thing is that I am holy. 
I am good, I am right, I am perfect, I am undefiled, I am, I am completely pure, there's no darkness in me, there's no evil in me, I am as I should be. I'm without defect. He then goes on and he says, not only am I holy, I am true. And isn't that good news? In a world of fake news where we're like, we don't have a clue where to go to find truth, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Like, look to me, and in me, you will find the ultimate reality of how life works best. And then he says, not only am I holy and true, but I hold the key of David. What he's talking about here is he says, I hold the key of the kingdom of God. He's saying, I'm the king of kings. I'm a perfect king. I'm a true king. And therefore, you can step off the throne of your own life and you truly can surrender everything to me. And then look what he says in verse 8. He says to the church of Philadelphia, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Tomorrow uh, is our last team sermon prep for a while. Uh, we, every time we go through the book of the Bible, we have what we call team sermon prep. Where everyone in the church is invited, if you want to, to help us actually work on the sermon. Forever's preaching that week, and it helps us best preach to the people who are here in the mornings, on, on Sunday mornings. But uh, we're meeting tomorrow, 12 o'clock. Join us, our last one for a while. But last week, we were meeting team sermon prep, and Savannah Parrott, one of our elders' wives, uh, she said that, that of, of this whole text, this line right here, I know your deeds, is the most encouraging line to her. And she says it's encouraging because I'm a stay-at-home mom. And therefore, most of the stuff I do, changing diapers, cleaning, cleaning again, and cleaning again, right? Trying to correct my kid, love my kid, play with my kid. She says all of that many times feels like it's completely unseen and unnoticed. But she says here I'm reminded that Jesus sees my deeds. He knows my deeds. And I want to remind you this morning, Jesus knows your deeds. Like some of you are doing incredible things that nobody else knows about. Some of you are serving faithfully in missional communities, even leading missional communities. Some of you are serving in kids' ministry every single week. Some of you are, are, are giving of your finances faithfully and, and, and sacrificially. And I want you to know today that even if I don't know, even if no other pastor knows, even if the person next to you does not know, Jesus knows, and therefore your work is not in vain. Jesus says to the church, I know your deeds. And then he goes on, and here has kind of been the main focus for me this past week in verse 8. He says, I know you have little strength. I know you are weak. But listen to this. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The church in Philadelphia had a lot of doors shut in their face. They were being persecuted by the Roman government, and they were being excommunicated by the local Jews who did not believe they were good enough to have a relationship with God. And so imagine, like, living in their shoes. I mean, like, literally, they go to bed at night, and they're not sure if someone's going to come in and kill them or not. Have you ever gone to bed at night wondering if you're going to live through it? Like, we can't even fathom that. And that's the way they're living And not only that, they're not just being rejected by the Roman government, but they're being rejected by their own family, by their own friends, simply because of their allegiance to Jesus. And in the midst of door after door after door being shut in their face, Jesus says, I want you to know I've opened a door of opportunity that no one can shut. And what is Jesus talking about here when he says, I've opened a door for you that no one can shut? Well, two things. One, we know in this context, because Jesus just said, I hold the key of David, the key of the kingdom of God. The first thing that Jesus wants them to see is I've opened the door for you to salvation. He wants them to see because you're poor in spirit, because you're humble, because of your neediness, you have looked to me and I have opened the door to the kingdom of God for you. 
So Jesus says to a church that the world has put on the sidelines, I actually want you on my team. And not because you're impressive. Not because you have your life together. Not because you have some hidden talent that nobody else has been able to uncover. He says, I've opened a door for you simply because in your weakness you have turned to me. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's very freeing. Some of you are incredibly impressive. Like, and you can't even help it. Like, you're so amazing. Like, and God just made you that way. Like, everything you touch turns to gold. And God bless you. I'm not envious of you at all. Um, But for the rest of us in here, we're really not that impressive. And and so as I began to think about this, I thought, man, if if salvation ultimately depends on how impressive Jared Pickney is, if if that's really how the kingdom of God works, if that's what it's hinging on, then I'm always going to be second-guessing myself. Because even if I can be impressive to y'all and look good to y'all, like the reality is I know how fickle and how fragile my own faith can be, and therefore I'm always going to be living with some sense of insecurity and despair. But if instead of the kingdom of God, depending on my impressiveness, if, if instead it depends on the impressiveness of Christ, if we actually can move forward in weakness, if God's love actually does flow to our neediness, and that is liberating, that is empowering, that is life-giving, and because Jesus knows this truly is the way it works, he, he looks at this church that is so weak, and he wants them to just be assured of the love that he has that flows towards their weakness. And look what he says in verse 9. This is incredible to me. He says, to those who belong to the synagogue of Satan, um, those are the Jews who have literally shut the door of the synagogue in their faces, who have said, you don't belong in this church. You're not good enough. You're not moral enough. You're not whatever enough. No, you can't come in here. Jesus says, those people are the synagogue of Satan. And he says, here's what I want you to know. To those who have looked down on you and rejected you, he says, one day I am going to make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you all along. How amazing is that? I love that Jesus didn't say, one day they're going to bow down at your feet and be like, wow, you loved Jesus all along. He says, no, they're going to bow down at your feet and realize I loved you all along. And guys, this is the essence of the Christian life. This is how you get access into the kingdom of God. It is not by you first loving God, but you believing that God has first loved you. It is by believing that he loves you with an unconditional love as you are and not as who you think you should be, because the reality is you will never be completely as you should be, not on this side of heaven. We have to get this right. And so I just want to stop right here and ask you this. I didn't do this in the first service, but I feel compelled to just ask you right now, like, do you believe that God loves you? And I don't, I don't just mean like, do you believe it up here? Like, like, do you feel that God loves you unconditionally, perfectly, with a never stopping, never ending, never giving up love? This is what it means to be a Christian, that God so loved the world, that he so loved me, that he couldn't help himself. He, he, he gave his only son So that if I just trust in his life, his death, his resurrection, I can have eternal life. This is the gospel. And it is the first thing, it is the first door that Jesus has opened for the church in Philadelphia. But then secondly, not only here is he talking about salvation, he's talking about mission. See, the truth is, and you need to hear this today, if you are a Christian, whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. Another way of saying that is if you have been saved, you have been sent on a mission to take the gospel forward, to evangelize, to share the good news about the kingdom of God with people who are far from God. 
And that is the second thing that Jesus is getting at here when he says, I've opened a door for you. And I think the great image here is the image of Noah's ark. Remember the story of Noah's ark where God, during a time of great chaos and wickedness, he preserves a remnant. He protects a small group of people who are committed to bringing their lives under his rule and reign. That's always the way it works. God is just looking for a small group of people committed to him, and he does this. And if you remember the story, after the flood subsides, the ark comes to a rest, and God says to Noah, now open the door and let the life out. And then he says, quote, be fruitful and multiply. And you see, this is what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia. He says, I've opened a door for you. I know the world is chaotic. I know it's wicked. I know the Roman Empire is scary. I know that there are so many other people who are falling away from me. But he says, look, even in your weakness, I want you to know I have opened a door for you, for you to walk through so that you can now go. And in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great door for effective work has been opened to me. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia. He says, I know you feel weak. I know you have little strength. But I have opened a door that no one can shut. And it's not just the door of salvation, but it's the door of mission. So go, and in your weakness, trust that I will empower you to do things that are bigger and better and more beautiful than you could ever imagine for my glory. In light of this, I want to ask you a personal question. Have you walked through the door that Jesus has opened for you? See, the truth is, Jesus has opened a door for you. And the first question is, is have you walked through the door of salvation? The question is not, have you been baptized? The question is not, did you pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart when you were five and now you just kind of have lived however you want? The question is not, are you here on a Sunday? But have you walked through the door of salvation? Another way of asking is, have you come to an awareness of your spiritual poverty? Have you come to an end of yourself? Have you, in your weakness and vulnerability, actually surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Have you seen him as the King of kings, as the one who knows better how to run your life than you do? See, the truth is today, all of us are going to walk through one of two doors. Jesus says there is a broad door, a wide door that leads to a broad path. And that is a path that many people will walk on because it's easy and it's comfortable and it's popular. It's what most of your friends are walking on. And Jesus says, in the end, it leads to destruction. But then he says, there is a narrow door that leads to a narrow path. And this is a path that, listen, is going to require you to give some things up because it's a narrow door. You can't fit everything through it. There's some stuff you're going to have to let go of and you're going to, it's going to require sacrifice and it's going to require that you make a commitment to continually trust in the love of God poured out for you through Christ. And Jesus says, oh, if you will stay on this path, if you will, like the Church of Philadelphia, endure patiently, he said, in the end, it will lead you to life and life abundantly. And so have you walked through this door? And if the answer to that question is no, then I pray, man, today would be the day of salvation for you. You will never find, apart from Christ, what you are looking for. You'll come here. You'll smile. You'll pay attention. Take some notes. But you will never truly be fulfilled. You need Jesus. A personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Not living off the faith of your neighbor, not living off the faith of your parent, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, not off of me, not off your MC, but you need a personal relationship with Christ. And the good news is today, if you are humble enough and if, you, if Jesus is not too low for you, 
He has opened the door for you to crawl into and to experience everything that you've been longing for in him. So the first question is, have I walked through the door of salvation? And if you say, yes, I have, and I figure that's the majority of you, the second question is this, have you walked through the open door of mission? Another way of asking it is, are you right now embracing your identity as a missionary? Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, just as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. In Acts 1.8, he says, I've given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so are you living as a missionary, as a sent one? Or if you can be honest, have you made your life ambition and your life mission more about your kingdom than about God's kingdom? See, one of my great fears is this. I have a fear right now in this in our church specifically, and I think it's true of other churches across the country, that, that somehow we are falling into what I would call an introspective spirituality. And what I mean by that is that we are beginning to increasingly believe that the church exists for me. That the church service that I show up to that worships about me. It's about me feeling better about myself or enhancing my lifestyle. And so we begin to, to look at, at God as kind of like our celestial therapist. But the spiritual disciplines were like, you know, reading the Bible, praying, fasting, things like that. We're like, yeah, cool. I will do that as long as that like is good for me for the purpose of just being good for me. And so like, we're like, yeah, I'll read the Bible as long as it makes me less anxious. The end. Or I will fast as long as it helps with my gut. Right. Or I will pray or I will do these things as long as it just makes me a better version of myself just for the sake of being a better version of myself. So I'll do all these Jesus-y things with myself at the center of all of it. Guys, if that's where you are, no, no condemnation for me, but you just need to understand, like, like, Jesus does want you to be a better version of yourself. He does want you to be the healthiest version of yourself you can be, but not just for your good, like ultimately for his glory, so that you better image to the world what he is really like, so that people far from God can be brought into a relationship with him. And so as a church, like, I just want to encourage you, like, man, like, like, reject introspective spirituality. Like, let's reject becoming inward focused and beginning to think that all of this is primarily about us. As some of you know, I began to uh, keep bees, I guess, about two months ago. I'm now a beekeeper. There I am. That's when I first got my new Look how happy I am. Um, ba- bees are amazing. They're amazing. Like they're so small, they seem so insignificant, and you're like, you know, you see one, you squash it or whatever else. I found out recently on a, in, a, in a TED Talk, it takes 2,300 bees, listen to this, it takes 2,300 bees traveling 165,000 miles and visiting over 6 million flowers to make one quart of honey. Do you know that? That's pretty incredible. And now think about this. You see what's behind me? There's like a couple little boxes right there. That's called a beehive. It's just one single beehive. Um, and, and Jimmy Williams is here too, so you can vouch for all this. He's like, he's a real beekeeper. In one beehive, in just one year, bees can make 75 pounds of honey. 75 pounds. So think about how many thousands of miles, how many thousands of bees and millions of flowers it takes for them to produce 75 pounds of honey in just one little hive like that. And as I begin to think about that, I've been watching my bees. And here's what you'll find. Like, like they're always coming and then going. 
coming and going, coming and going. So they come into the hive and it's safe and they're protected and they can be fed and they can rest and they can be renewed, but then they go right back out. And what they do is they gather a harvest that God has prepared for them that then leads to them having this massive impact way beyond what just one bee could do. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, isn't that a picture of what the church should look like? Guys, the church should be a place where we are coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. This is a picture of coming. It's when we come into a safe community or our missional communities or, or our DNAs where it's safe, we can be protected and we can be fed and we can rest and we can be renewed. But there has to be a going out. There has to be retreat, but then there also has to be risk. See, God has prepared for this church a harvest. Just as he prepared for the bees a harvest, he has prepared for this church a harvest that we are to go out and together. I think of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, where he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. In light of that, like, let's just ask God right now to do that. Can we do that? Was that weird? If we just stop and pray, it's like out in the middle of my message, it's not the end of it, but... Uh, Let's just pray and ask God for that. Jesus, you tell us to ask. You say the harvest is plentiful. It's hard to believe that. But you have prepared a harvest for us, men and women who are far from you, that can pass from death to life if we will just simply go to where they are and to share the good news. And I pray that God among this church and other churches that you would raise up laborers, that you would raise up workers to go out into the harvest, to truly embrace our identity as missionaries, as sent ones, to share the good news with others. And it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. I get a sense, and I could be wrong, that some of you are bored out of your mind when it comes to the Christian life could be wrong I get a sense that you are spiritually dry some of you your faith is waning a little bit maybe you feel unfulfilled and if that's you first I want you to know I'm really glad you're here you're welcome here but I also want you to know this if you're here and you feel unsatisfied in life and unfulfilled, like, man, there's got to be more than this, you need to know that a new Netflix show is not going to fix that ache. A new spouse isn't going to do it. More money is not going to do it. A therapist or a day at the spa, as good as that is, ultimately is not going to be enough for you, just in and of itself. A sabbatical or a vacation, like, that's not going to be enough to sustain your faith. And that is because, please hear me, if you are going to not just survive but thrive as a Christian, if you are going to flourish, you have to be who God made you to be. And God made you to be a missionary. I do believe that. Like missionaries aren't just the people who like to live over in Africa or Indonesia or you know, just like sleep in mosquito tents and all that. Like, like they're that for sure. But do you realize like you're a missionary? Like, that's who you are. Paul says you're an ambassador of Christ. And in order for you to thrive, for your faith to grow, you have to embrace that reality. A few years ago, I was at a a funeral, and there was an 85-year-old pastor in front of me. And 
And I was blown away by this guy because he wasn't cynical. He wasn't hard-hearted. He wasn't bitter. He was passionate and lively and had vigor in his eyes, was still married to the same woman. I mean, he, this guy, I, I just looked at him and I said, like, like, what's the secret? Like, what's the secret to sustaining passion for Jesus and his church and his mission for this long? Tell me. I'm all ears. And he said three things. He said, memorize scripture, repent of your sins, and share your faith every single day. Because he said, the reality is your faith will not develop unless you give it away. That's a good word. Some of us, we feel like our faith is beginning to dissipate and diminish. And I think for some of us, it's because we're just holding it in all to ourselves. And so if you want to grow, you want to become the best version of yourself, get out of your comfort zone. There has to be retreat, but there has to be risk. There has to be coming, but there has to be going. And by the way, let me just say this and I'll move on. If there was ever a time in American history that we would need some people in the church to get fired up about this, it's now. I don't know if you saw the new like Gallup poll that came out this past week, but, but according to the Gallup poll, the number of Americans who believe in God have now dropped to a record low which is 81%. Now, that seems like a lot, but keep in mind, what that's saying is 81% of Americans believe in a God. Not just 81% of Americans believe like Jesus is God, like just just a God. Like, yeah, I think that there's a God out there somewhere. 81%. It's an all-time low in American history. And if you dive into this survey, what you find is actually the younger the generation, the more that number drops. So, um, for example... Uh, if you're between the ages of 50 to 64, 88% of people believe in a God if you're between the ages of 50 and 64. But if you're between the ages of 18 to 29, only 68% of people believe in a God. And so I'm not a mathematician, but I mean, just look at that. If, if we continue on that trajectory, that trend, unless we begin to share our faith and go, if that continues, we're literally like a couple generations from becoming an endangered species or possibly even extinct as Christians in America. Just a couple generations away. That's what that is saying. And, and look, you can listen to that and be like, you can have one or two responses. You can be like, oh, wow, that's so depressing. And then in your depression, be like, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing because it's all hopeless. Or rather than saying, wow, that is so depressing, you can look at that and say, what an incredible opportunity. What an incredible opportunity. Because if you'll study revival in American history, or just church history, what you will find is revivals are always birthed out of decline. It always comes whenever the culture is getting more chaotic and more wicked and more secular. And here's how it happens. Please listen, because this is what it might happen to some of you. Here's how it's going to happen. Somebody in here is actually going to receive this word today. I don't mean like somebody's just going to be able to regurgitate it. Like somebody, Jesus is going to come to one of you or some of you, and you're going to feel weak and insignificant. You're not going to feel like you're qualified for this job. He's going to come to some of you and say, I've placed an open door for you. I've placed an open door for you, Trent. I've placed an open door for you, Valerie, for you, Shane, for you, Jody. I've played, he, he, Matt, I, he's going to come to some of you, and he's going to say, I've placed an open door for you. You know what's going to happen? You're going to listen, and you're not just going to listen. You're going to respond, and you're going to go out, and God's going to use you as weak and insignificant and small as you may be. And he's going to do incredible things through you as you continue to trust him with this word. What a time to be alive in the church. What a time, man. God is famous for taking small groups of people, 
weak-looking people. He did it with Noah and his family. He did it with the disciples. He does it right here in Philadelphia. He is famous for taking them and then using them in incredible ways, in ways that only he can get the glory for. And so here's the thing. Like, we can't go about business as usual as a church. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but things have changed. Like, I was reading a stat this past week that said that uh, post-COVID, you know, all these churches thought, like, their numbers were going to climb back, and even more so. And, 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 and the majority of churches in America have experienced a 25% decrease in the amount of people who show up on a Sunday morning. Membership has declined, all that. It was already happening before COVID. COVID just kind of expedited it. My point is just saying, like, like, if we think we're going to change the city of Paragould by just opening our doors and people coming to hear me talk, like, like, like we're on the clock. Like, it's just a matter of time before this church dies. Like, we have to begin to take this posture of people are not going to keep showing up just to listen to someone talk. Like, rather than people coming here, we have got to go to where they are to live as salt and light, to take the risk. And if that makes you feel overwhelmed, if that makes you feel intimidated and needy, awesome. That's what it should do. And in your neediness, you then run to Christ and you experience, as Paul does, that his power is made perfect in your weakness. So let's just end here. Let's end here. Verse 12. Jesus says, if we'll embrace this message, look at what he promises. Verse 12. To the one who is victorious, he says, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? Well, in this culture, it simply means this. If you were a priest or you're a magistrate, you did something amazing, they would erect a pillar in your honor with your name on it. So people would go by and be like, what an incredible person this was. Jesus says, if you'll embrace this message, I'm going to make you a pillar in the only temple that matters in the kingdom of God. You'll be honored by my father for all eternity. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy promise. You'll never again have to leave. What is that about? Well, because Philadelphia was uh, sitting next to a massive volcano, they would have these major earthquakes, and the earthquakes would cause tremors to go for months at a time. So you would all have to leave your homes if you lived in Philadelphia. You'd go camp outside of your house in the wilderness or outside of the city until the tremors stop. So there was no real stability if you lived in Philadelphia. There was always a coming and a going, like leaving the city, coming back to the city, leave the city, come back to the city. You never knew what was going to happen. And Jesus says, there is coming a day, if you will trust me, where if you will build your life on me as a solid foundation, you will have a home that is secure and safe, and you'll never be kicked out of it. You'll never have to leave. So there's no danger, no threat whatsoever. Safety, security, cheers, he says. And then lastly, he says, and I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Um, on three different occasions, history tells us the city of Philadelphia was basically laid to waste because of earthquakes. And what happened is because there was a lot of untapped natural resources in Philadelphia, the emperors of the Roman Empire would come and rebuild that city because it gave, they had a vested interest in it. They would rebuild that city. Then as a way of saying, you now owe me, they would rename the city after themselves. So this is a city that had an identity crisis, constantly being renamed. I don't know who they are anymore. Does that sound like our culture right now, by the way? Complete identity crisis? Like, like that's what they were going through. And whenever they were renamed, they were renamed for the purpose of knowing, like, you now owe your life to me. Like, I own you. And by the way, the people saying this often were emperors that were bloody tyrants that would persecute Christians. Jesus, being aware of this, says, one day you're going to know that you have my name written over your life. And you're going to have this identity that is secured, not in condemnation, not in, in, in fear, but in love. And he said, so you're going to know for all eternity, you're going to have this name, this identity over you that is a reminder, my debt actually has been paid in full. That Jesus has paid it. 
And I am loved and I am accepted and I am welcomed into God's kingdom for all eternity. And so as we end, ultimately, what is Jesus saying here? What he is saying is that if you will go to him, that he will ultimately meet all the major longings of your heart. And so if you feel rejected and discarded, when Jesus says, I'll make you into a pillar, he's saying, I'm going to give you significance. You're going to be honored. If you feel anxious and afraid and vulnerable, like you're never on stable ground, Jesus says, man, one day you're going to feel completely safe and secure. So at home. We'll never have to leave again. And if you're here and you feel confused, not only about who you are, but you're trying to root your identity in things other than Jesus and you feel fear and you feel anxiety and all these things and and guilt, Jesus says, no, 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 like I'm going to give you identity that is rooted in my unending love. You're going to know without a shadow of a doubt that you truly have been loved all along, unconditionally and without reservation. And what's amazing, and we'll end here, is how do you get in on this? It is not by being impressive. (laughs) It is not by being a good person. It is not by being moral, by going to seminary, by doing great things for God, and then finally he notices and says, all right, I want you on my team. But it's just by being needy. As it turns out, that's the one thing God needs from us is our neediness. And in our neediness, rather than sitting in shame, we run to our Savior and we discover that in Him, truly His grace is sufficient for all things. With that, I'm going to invite our band to come forward and those preparing communion to come forward. And without shuffling around and getting too distracted, let's just take a moment to respond to Jesus. And so I want you to just think about the door of opportunity that Jesus has before you today. Maybe for some of you it's the the door of salvation. And today is the first day where you need to step through that. And you need to know the only thing that will keep you from going through it is your pride, your fear of man, your willingness to surrender control. But the door is open for you today. And if you've never walked through it, I encourage you today to, to make the day of salvation, to trust in Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection. If you want to know more about how to do that, Adam's up here in the front. I'll be up here in the front. There's other people throughout here who would love to connect with you. Maybe for others, it's the door of mission. You've been retreating. You've been just staying, not going. And today, I just, maybe Jesus is just trying to open your eyes and show you, hey, here's the door I've opened for you, and now's the time to walk through it. Whatever it means, I would encourage you just to process that before the Lord. And then as you're ready, you can come and take communion. Communion for those who... It's your first time with us. The way it works here is uh, you can come forward. You can take communion here, or we have disposable communion cups in the back. You feel safer taking that. But uh, the bread here represents the perfect life of Jesus that he lived on our behalf. It'll be dipped in the juice, which represents his blood that is shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And we take this as a tangible reminder of the gospel. And we take this expecting to meet with Jesus. So we don't believe that Jesus is the bread or he is the juice, but we do believe that his presence is, is somehow mysteriously more active in some ways even in this than in any other part of our service. And so I just want to say this, like maybe you've not been ministered to at all by the word today. I hope you have been. But this right here is even enough to come and partake of communion today in faith in what Christ has done for you. So if you're a Christian, we encourage you to come and do that. If you're not a Christian again, rather than receiving communion, we encourage you to receive Christ. And I'd be happy to process and talk with you about that. Everything uh, with that in mind, let's stand.
I want to pray for us. And then as you're ready, take communion. We'll sing one final song and then we'll be dismissed. And so, Father, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these elements that we're about to partake of. I pray, Holy Spirit, that through the scripture, uh, through uh, these sacraments, that you would now minister to our hearts in a deep and meaningful way. That you would open our eyes to see you, open our hearts to receive you. And I pray that as a response to these things, because of what you have done, that we would be a church that goes out into the world and that we would share the best news on the planet. That we do not have to earn our way. That there's a God who actually loves us so much. A God that actually can meet every single desire of our heart. And that we can experience that just by coming with the empty hands of faith in Christ. I pray that Jesus, we would share that. And as a result, we'd see more and more people pass from death to life. And it's in Christ's name that I, I pray and ask these things. Amen.